What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Time for another Bible Geek episode with your geekish host, Robert M. Price. Let's say we uh, pick up where we left off last time. Uh, I uh, had no uh, answer. Well, I did kind of have an answer, but it was uh, still sort of inchoate uh, to somebody's question. And I've looked up some stuff since then, which uh, may possibly help. Um, uh, The question was... In the pericope, the the self-contained story of the transfiguration, Mark and Matthew state that six days had passed before this event, while Luke says eight days had passed. Why the difference in the days? A uh, real good question that can't be just a goof. Uh, it's it's obviously a redactional thing. Well, uh, as Strauss points out, and others have since, the six days must come from uh, Exodus, where uh, the the cloud, uh, the the Shekinah cloud, rests uh, hovers over Mount Sinai for six days before. Jehovah commands Moses to come up and and see him, uh, and that just has to be the the origin of it. it that's uh, you know, well, the whole transfiguration thing is is no doubt based on Moses going up to get the tables of the law, and when he comes down, he's glowing like the sun and all of that. So that's the six days. Matthew got it from Mark. Luke changed it. Why eight days? Well, the best guess I know of, and I I was sort of floundering trying to grope my way toward this, but I didn't remember exactly. Now I've looked it up. Uh, This seems to reflect uh, a change based on liturgy. Uh, it's It looks like uh, Luke's church, or wherever he got the idea from, some Christian church was observing the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, and uh, it's an eight-day affair. And uh, this um, this apparently is supposed to reflect that. It's it's like this story was used on the, the, the last day of, of the feast, and so they made the climax of the transfiguration occur uh, eight days later. So uh, that's as far as much as I know. Uh, so if you if you happen to know of a another explanation, Bible geeks, I would uh, truly appreciate hearing about it. I could find a bit less than I thought on it, though both of those conjectures I mentioned sound pretty good to me. Chris Cheshire's is most lowly venerated demigod, as per C.S. Lewis, you know, the lower archy and our father below and all that. Uh, in my study of Gnostic texts, I've not yet come across a legend that I heard of several years ago, namely one in which Judas Iscariot was specifically commissioned by Jesus to, quote, betray, unquote, Jesus, in order that Jesus would be killed to liberate the Christ I own from his body. Uh, put this way, it fits with Gnostic conceptions about being liberated from one's own body. And in this legend, Judas was the catalyst that allowed Jesus himself to be liberated from his own body and give the promise that others could as well. Hence, my question for the Bible geek, is this established in Gnostic literature or have I heard a misinterpretation? Um well, I think that it is in Gnosticism, Gnostic lore. I believe Origen or or one of the church fathers, it might be Irenaeus, uh, says that the Cainite Gnostics venerated Jesus as a hero. And that uh, you, you could be a non-Gnostic and say that, viewing Judas sort of as the high priest who offers the, the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus. But of course, the uh, somebody like the Cainite 
Canaanites um, wouldn't have viewed it that way. Not Canaanites, right? But Cainites, because they viewed Cain as uh, one of the good guys in in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, they're unlikely to have viewed it that way. So um, since the Gnostics we know from Nag Hammadi, for instance, in the Revelation of Peter and and elsewhere in the in the Acts of John, uh, we we do have the notion of the real. Uh, Jesus, the real Christ, not being on the cross, uh, while whatever was on there, even the human body of Jesus had been sloughed off, uh, it, uh, it would make sense that if the Cainites venerated Judas as a hero, then this is what they had in mind, what you, the way you described it. Now, if the Gospel of Judas is authentically an ancient text, though we only have a fragment of it, it that might be the place where uh, th- this was set forth. We do have some dialogue between Jesus and Judas. I don't happen to remember if it uh, specifically mentions that, but certainly uh, Judas is in the know and other disciples are not uh, at the Last Supper. The problem with this is I take seriously um, my uh, friend and colleague Richard J. Arthur, uh, his his speculation that the Gospel of Judas is a modern forgery by Marvin Meyer, uh, and uh, so I I mean there's a bunch of these fake uh, lost gospels lately, and uh, uh, so I, I'm not sure if that attests it or not. But yeah, I, I think there is good reason to believe this is an ancient Gnostic. Uh, Theologumenon, as they say, piece of theology. Thanks, Chris. Oh, another one from Chris. Uh, what do you think of the parallels between Jesus Christ and John Connor from the Terminator series? It strikes me that the first Terminator film is essentially ensuring that Jesus Christ lives past his birth from Mary, uh, see Matthew chapter 2, and in and that Terminator 2, in which John Connor is the same age as Jesus Christ, is in Luke chapter 2, about 30, ensures that he lives to fight another day. I'm not a fan of the three films that came after the first two. I don't think they carried James Cameron's original uh, conception uh, forward. But in the TV series Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the continuation of the events following Terminator 2 is essentially a gospel uh, preceding Jesus Christ at 30 years of age when he was christened by John the Baptist. I don't know how familiar you are with Ridley Scott's films uh, and James Cameron's films that tie into the same universe, which explore vast reaches of the depths of what it means to be human. I'm not familiar with Ridley Scott's at all, except maybe one or two, and I can't even remember which they are. Um, Okay. uh, yeah, right. Uh, and some of the core issues of humans and gods evoking ancient mythological mysteries and making shameless Bible references via aliens and robots. But I wonder if you have seen and reflected on any of these films, if you could comment on what your perspectives of the correlation between John Connor and Jesus Christ might be. Well, he is the uh, savior, right? I mean, he's the guy that... Uh, in whom they put their hopes to uh, defeat the machines who are kind of like the principalities and powers. In fact, very much like the principalities and powers understood from a sociological perspective. Uh, Things, uh, institutions and so forth created by mere humans like us, but they've assumed a life of their own. Uh, They've gotten out of hand and we now serve them. I mean, that's very, very much the same notion. And he is to uh, J.C. John Connor is supposed to try to put an end to that. Um, Only he comes uh, from the future, in a sense, rather than from heaven. That uh, fits the uh, the theory of Clifford Geertz, uh, where, where uh, in a, an essay called something like uh, Religion as a Cultural System, he says that all religions try, in one way or another, to, um, to explain three types of problems or groups of problems. 
with by reference to an unseen world in which these problems are somehow solved. We may not know how, but we have the faith that they will be, and that's good enough because the alternative is to believe there is no order or justice in the universe. Now, what are the three uh, categories? One is... Uh, uh, is uh, uh, ignorance, like when people say, boy, I sure don't understand this passage in the Bible that makes it look contradictory, but I can't afford to admit that it is because then I couldn't look at the Bible as an authority. So one day when we die and go to heaven, we'll have a big seminar in the sky where all these things will be explained. So there is an explanation, whatever the heck it is. Wish I knew, but it's good enough to just know that there is one and the Bible remains authoritative. Another one is adversity. Uh, why do these things happen? Uh, how can God be allowing this? Uh, well, I don't know, but uh, we'll find out when we get to heaven, uh, what I think John Hick calls eschatological verification, um, the old uh, back-of-the-tapestry view, right, that uh, God is uh, weaving the events together to make a beautiful tapestry, but we only see the back, which appears to be a chaos of crisscross crossing colors. Uh, once we get to heaven, we'll see, ah, that's the sense it made. God had a good reason for allowing, etc., etc. Uh, and the third one is injustice, uh, where uh, it's not just avalanches and plagues and all that, but how does that SOB get away with this? Uh, the wickedness for which people do not answer in this life, uh, the, the uh, martyrdoms of the righteous is there no moral order in the universe? Well, you, you can't live with that. A great movie about this is Woody Allen's movie Crimes and Misdemeanors. Well, uh, so what you do is deposit an invisible realm in the future or above us now in which all wrongs are righted. Uh, the righteous are rewarded, uh, the wicked are punished, uh, or it, it may be resurrection from the dead in the future, which is using the same thing. It may be karma and reincarnation. Well, uh, so-and-so seems to be getting away with something now, but uh, next uh, time around, he'll be um, uh, reincarnated as a bed bug, and we'll see how he likes that. And so the, the Geertz uh, says this, and, and so in the same way, uh, John Connor comes from the unseen world. I mean, I know he's born in, in the 80s on Earth, but he's begotten by, uh, what is the guy's future self? I that can't be, I guess, but uh, something like that. And uh, and so the, he is like the the son of uh, a traveler from the future rather than from heaven. I know I mentioned this real recently, but uh, think of what Mad TV did with their Terminator 2 before the actual Terminator 2 movie came out, where um, uh, the Schwarzenegger uh, lookalike uh, shows up and gets the vestments of one of the three wise men and comes to Bethlehem to safeguard the newborn savior against the attempts to kill him. He's standing there with his assault rifle, and uh, he's, he hangs around uh, the margins with Jesus during his whole life. And then finally, we see him at the Last Supper when Jesus is announcing that uh, he has to die and uh, and that Judas is the one who'll betray him. Well, up pops the Terminator and mows down Judas. Uh, and uh, Jesus says, what are you doing? He was going to betray you. And he says, look, you don't understand. He's supposed to. And so Jesus goes over and raises Judas from the dead. And he said, now, where was I? Okay, this Son of man came to give his life a ransom for many, and then suddenly the, the gunfire again. Judas is dead all over again. Jesus is, hey, look, stop killing Judas. Uh, it's supposed to happen. So, okay, he lets him go. And then the next thing you see, Jesus is on the Via Dolorosa carrying the cross. The Terminator standing there uh, with uh, and doesn't try to put a stop to it. And there's this woman weeping uh, next to him, and he says, don't worry. He'll be back. Uh, well, uh, I guess he pretty much, uh, Mad TV pretty much got that right. But I haven't seen enough of uh, either man's work to uh, to comment beyond that uh, bunch of fustian. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, thanks again, Chris. Uh, who's next here? What's the name? Oh, Zach. Uh, 
asks, uh, thanks for the answer regarding the rulers of this age. You know, the, what's Paul talking about? The, if the archons of this age had understood the hidden wisdom of God, they never would have crucified uh, Jesus, etc. I think you're right about the ambiguity of 1 Corinthians 2.8. It really could go either way. However, after hearing your analysis, it still does seem to be the closest Paul gets to corroborating the existence of a historical Jesus. In Uh, excluding interpolated passages, of course. It sure is a weak pillar to stand on, though, considering the weakness of all other alleged proofs of Jesus' existence. Let me just pause there. You know, even if it is not unlikely that the references to Pilate, Herod, and Caiaphas, as it might be, Um, The fact that it's equally likely, at least, that he's referring to these supramundane archons, the principalities and powers, also named in Colossians, makes it impossible to produce this as a trump card, as some would do, to say, aha, you see, he did believe in a historical Jesus. Not clear. You, You can't use something that is an open question of debate as if it were a settled uh, uh, factor. Anyway, uh, back to Zach. However, that made me think, are there any other pieces of evidence inside or outside of the Bible that seem to be reasonable indicators of a historical Jesus in your view? Uh, well, the one thing I think is is pretty good, though not decisive, is the caliphate of James, as uh, Harnack and Stauffer uh, discussed it. Um, the notion that uh, when, like, who is James the Just supposed to be? Well, it seems pretty much, from what little we hear uh, in church historians way back there, church fathers, that he was supposed to be the caliph of Jesus, as uh, uh, Abu Bakr was uh, when Muhammad died and so on. And then after him, it was another of the disciples, uh, uh, it was Uthman, and then Umar, and or was it the other way around? And then finally, Ali, uh, the, the uh, custodian of the community in the absence of the prophet. Uh, Well, it's even more, well, that's kind of what James the Just is supposed to be, only it's even more like the succession of Alid um, imams that, uh, like the the partisans of Ali, which is what Shiite means, uh, partisan. Uh, The the partisans of Ali believed he should have been the first caliph because he is a blood, he was a blood relative of the prophet Muhammad. I think he was his cousin, and then he adopted him as his son, but he was a blood relation. And then after, he was the inspired imam, not just a, a responsible, devout caretaker, but not really a prophet either, but I don't know if there's any real difference. He was the inspired interpreter of the Quran. And uh, well, when he died, his uh, sons Hussein and Hassan, one after the other, became uh, the uh, the imam and, in effect, the caliph of the Shiite community, which broke off. And then there were several others resulting in succession disputes in different Shiite sects, the Zaidis or Fivers, the Ismailis or Seveners, etc. Etc. Well, um, that's what it looks like uh, here. That James the Just, if he's the brother of Jesus, is the one that takes over the role of the head of the community. You could also think of the the Maccabean brothers. Judah Maccabee dies in battle, so Simon, his brother, takes over. When he dies, the next one. When he dies, the next one. There were a bunch of them. Uh, same sort of thing. Well, after James, we're told uh, that uh, Simeon Bar Cleophas, another other brother of Jesus, in fact, James and Simeon are mentioned in the list of the brothers of Jesus in Mark chapter 3, right? Um, and then presumably so on down the line. Well, if this is historically accurate, as it might be, I mean, it's all we got to go on, that would certainly imply that there was a historical Jesus they were replacing. The problem is, it appears to me for various reasons, that uh, the the whole Jesus Christ thing grew from different roots. Uh, different groups came together uh, over the course of time. I mean, we know this happened later, like with the two Melchizedek groups, one Gnostic, one not. Eventually, they fused together and stuff like that. Um, 
I think that's what happened to give us the earliest Christianity we can actually see on the page anywhere. Uh, and just like the, the I, I picture the followers of the the brothers of Jesus, so called, as being exactly like the followers of John the Baptist, uh, because he was the figurehead of a rival sect. That's pretty clearly written between the lines in both Luke and John. And so, uh, in order to try to get both groups together, uh, what those, well, what Luke does is to, well, uh, the, yeah, what Luke does is to say, you know, these guys were cousins, right? Uh, and uh, so they're sort of linked genealogically, like the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. And uh, in fact, when both of their moms were pregnant, um, John, six months further along than Jesus, when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth says, holy mackerel, the babe leaped in my womb, uh, and because the mother of my Lord has visited me. So you see what he's doing there. He's saying, oh, yeah, John and Jesus, birds of a feather, though, of course, John, even as a fetus, recognized the superiority of his cousin. So that's what you guys ought to do. We have a place for John. Not all Christians did, right? Some Christians said that John the Baptist was a false prophet and the father of all heresies, that Docythius and Simon Magus were disciples of his and so forth. But Luke and John, they said, no, 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 he's good, but he's no Number two, how's that? He's got second billing. That, that's not so bad, right? So why don't you join us? I think the same thing happened with the so-called brothers of Jesus. I think James the Just was very likely the Qumran teacher of righteousness, but even if he wasn't, he was the, the figurehead of his own sect, as as uh, Robert Eisenman argues very compellingly to my mind, and uh, that uh, when this group, too, was assimilated into Christianity, these guys were retroactively defined as brothers of a historical Jesus. Jesus, a mythical character, originally a dying and rising savior god, was euhamerized, uh, was made into a historical figure by the time this happened. So that's that's how I uh, think that that happened. So it's not a knock-down argument, but of all the historicist arguments, that is the one that has the greatest plausibility to me. Uh, I discuss some of the stuff in my book, uh, The Christ Myth Theory and Its Problems, and uh, so let me refer you to that. Uh, let's see, okay, um, mm. uh, well, just to continue a little more, Zach says, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.8 seems a bit fishy, uh, it is it at all odd that Paul's revelatory archangel Messiah would find his cosmic extraterrestrial death via a Roman torture device? The cross seems more fitting for a mere mortal earthling. Perhaps there was a more spiritual symbolic meaning that I'm not aware of. Yeah, um, uh, my uh, late friend and colleague, Acharya S. D. M. Murdoch, explained this as a reference to the, uh, uh, the uh, oh man, I can never remember this, um, the uh, procession of the equinox and so on, where one celestial line crosses another. We know that the the Gnostics were big on uh, on astronomy and astrology and all that, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but uh, anyway, okay, thanks, Zach. Uh, Travis Collier says, I was recently given an argument for theism based on Pascal's wager. Now, I know there are a lot of problems associated with it, but can you give me some historical insight into what Blaise Pascal thought of the wager? Well, it was one of several arguments for Christianity and specifically the Roman Catholic Church. This guy was a, a 
prodigy in math and recognized as such in his time. He was like a mathematical Mozart. Well, he was also very theologically minded, and he was an ally of uh, of the Jansenist movement, which was predestinarian and put a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, the experience of grace. They had an uneasy relationship with the hierarchy of the church, who uh, viewed their their doctrines as heretical, though they the Jansenists claimed they were being misrepresented, and eventually they kind of got branded as heretics and, and booted. When they did, Pascal didn't go along with them. He kind of backed down officially, uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there, really. He wrote this book of apologetics, or began to, and the material that he had written for it appears in his collection, Pensées, uh, uh, Thoughts, and uh, in it, he's he's trying to argue that uh, this is one of many reasons that one ought to embrace uh, the Catholic faith, and uh, that uh, he had other ones, too, so he wasn't just suggesting some sort of existentialist leap, but I guess the point of it was to say, what have you got to lose? Right, even if it turns out everything I'm saying is bunk, uh, believe me, you're gonna uh, have a much more fulfilling life uh, with the moral compass of the community and everything that the the Christian Church, read the Catholic Church, offers. Uh, and um, if it turns out the lights just go out when you die, well, what have you lost? <laughs> but on the other hand, if you don't believe it, and I am right, well, there's hell to pay, uh, and. And uh, so uh, I don't know if he dealt with the question of what about other religions and the dangers of not converting to them. Uh, but uh, this is at least the historical context. I, I couldn't really find anything about other social forces that might have been in play, but I know that was the religious context anyway. Justin M. White says, Dear sagely singer of salient psalms, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I had a psychology professor who worked in a mental institution where there were several people experiencing either temporary or permanent psychotic breaks. At one point, the institution housed two people. One was convinced he was God. The other was Satan. I was watching the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series, and the section on the Babel fish brought this tale back to mind. My question is, if you were a psychologist, or perhaps the mental patient, since you would have a wide enough grasp on theology to make this hypothetical difficult, how could you actually prove the patient was not the Lord Almighty? What, if anything, could snap them out of this delusion? Could the patient find a way to refute any argument the psychologist gave? Well, I don't mean this the way it's going to sound, but uh, uh, an imaginative a person who thought he was God could simply use the same slate of arguments that sane Christian believers use to defend God. If you say, uh, you know, buddy, uh, I can't really imagine God would be cursing like you're cursing. I can't imagine he would haul off and slug Mr. Satan over there like you're doing. Isn't God above that? Well, the guy could say, hey, look, I move in strange ways, my wonders to perform. I'm afraid as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my thoughts above yours, saith the Lord your God. God, which happens to be me. Uh, and uh, so you, you could, it's just the problem of evil, the problem of theodicy. And uh, I like that he could say, hey, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Uh, and uh, you're never going to see the truth if you try to just cram it into a test tube of rationality. So I would think the uh, that it's a self-sealing premise. It's invulnerable to disconfirmation. And uh, that's the problem with this, uh, arguing with Islamic uh, radicals as well. Right, so uh, that's, that would be what I think. By the way, there's a great book by Milton Rokeach, R-O-K-E-A-C-H, called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti starts with a Y. It's a Michigan insane asylum. I mean, it's a town, and that's where it is, where he's got these three guys in the same institution, all of whom think they're Jesus. And so he gets them together to see what'll happen. One of them just retreated to the corner by himself, but the other two were threatening each other with lightning 
lightning bolts and all that. Uh, uh, boy, what fun. It kind of reminds me of the disciples, the way they're depicted in the Gospels. Anyway, um, oh, this is from uh, Tim from Australia, who says, G'day. A few more questions for you, Gov. After reading through Matthew 5 recently, I came once again to verses 17 through 20. I noted for the first time that those who relax the least of the commandments and teach others to do so still make it into the kingdom of heaven, even though they will be called least in it. What is going on here? The targets of the passage are still saved? Well, it could be... um, just interrupting here, like um, Karl Barth, who vociferously repudiated everything Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of theological liberalism, said. Then he says, uh, but even Schleiermacher is still a Christian. Uh, I think it, it's, it may be that kind of thing, though it also might mean vis-a-vis the kingdom of heaven. Um, he's the least. You know, you can't uh, he's the lowest, uh, and that he ain't getting in. Uh, because later on, in a piece of Matthew redaction, uh, when uh, the last day comes, these somebody comes up and says, Hey, Lord, good to see you again. Don't you remember uh, when uh, we uh, you taught in our streets and we cast out demons in your name? And he says, Then I will say to them, I'm afraid I don't know you. I, your name's not on the list. Uh, what? Uh, well, um, so those who think they're in are really out. Uh, very similar to in Luke, what he says about the, the Pharisees and the Jewish elders. You're going to be mighty surprised when you see um, people coming from the East and the West to sit down at the Messianic banquet with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you, the natural heirs of the kingdom, kicked out. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, so I, I think that is still possible. Uh, but you could also parallel it with the uh, Q saying that of men born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> but even so, uh, he's the least, uh, even so, the least in the kingdom of heavens greater than John. Uh, well, you know, if uh, that similar language could imply, yeah, you're going to be there just by the skin of your teeth. Uh, think of First Corinthians, where people uh, in Corinth are criticizing this and that Christian leader in favor of the one they like best. I am of Paul. I belong to Apollos or Cephas. Uh, and uh, Paul says, hey, don't be too quick to criticize. You're not in a position to do that. Now, one day, uh, all of us will uh, stand at the judgment seat and our work for Christ will be evaluated. Uh, If we built with shoddy materials, it's going to go up in flames. If we built with uh, good uh, metal, uh, uh, the castle will remain. But that's not for you to decide. He says, I I don't know if I'll pass. Uh, I'm doing my best but I'm, I'm not in a position to judge. You sure aren't. Uh, well, that may be. And then he says, the one whose work is consumed by flames, he will nonetheless be saved by the skin of his teeth. Uh, so it's, it's not unreasonable that uh, that is what Matthew means, at, if, at least if these other passages are, are parallel. It does show that this kind of language could mean, well, all right, they're Christians. Um, uh, okay, uh, oh, I heard you recently discuss the problem of the Peter and Cornelius story in Acts 10 through 11, compared with the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations versus the debate about evangelizing to Gentiles. This idea seems to be that both cannot be historical, since if the risen Lord had commanded them to make disciples of the nations, there could be no debate. Not to be a harmonizer, but could the phrase disciples of all the nations refer to the nations of Israel rather than to the Gentiles? Well, the ethnoi, that that uh, really has to mean the nations who are Gentiles. In fact, Gentile is an alternate translation of the same word. Uh, now, 
there's another alternative that I think is a bit contrived, but less so, and that is that it means go to Jews living in the diaspora. But I, I think that's uh, that, that strikes me as um, kind of hair splitting. Uh, oh, I could be way off here, but if there were ambiguity, could that explain the debate? In the not-so-great commission, Jesus said not to go among the Gentiles, but only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, I could be way off base here, so any thoughts? Well, remember the uh, story of the Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter, uh, and Jesus says, look, I'm sorry, lady, I can't help you. I was sent to the uh, lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let the children first be fed. And uh, there's this idea, of course, the whole story is about the, the future Gentile mission. Um, Jesus isn't dealing with Gentiles, uh, and um but uh, this Gentile woman's daughter, symbolizing the future generation who will be of Gentiles who will be evangelized by the apostles, and uh, and uh, that's and uh, she is the the kid is not present on the scene, but back home with a freaked out babysitter, right? Get out. And, uh, and so it's like not this generation, but the next, not here, but far away. It's anticipating the Gentile mission. And, uh, this is another less overt version of the great commission defending the Gentile mission. And again, I, I just don't see how, I mean, even Peter himself on the day of Pentecost, the promises to you and to all who are far off. What, he forget about that? Uh, when, when uh, he was supposed to go to Cornelius, everybody else forget about it. I was hoping you could set me straight about a seeming inconsistency in the New Testament about secret knowledge and esoteric interpretation. The Gnostics were condemned as heretics, yet the evangelists scour the scripture for hidden meanings. Examples of this include Hosea 11.1 1 and Isaiah 7.14. I heard you say recently that Matthew knew full well the context of these verses, the Exodus and the birth of Isaiah's own kid, but I saw, but he saw secondary meaning in them beyond the plain texts. So my question is this, esoteric reading or not? This is to say nothing of the parables. The surface reading is about a son returning home or a landlord going away and giving his tenants some scratch or whatever the story is, yet there is a hidden meaning. Jesus said that to those on the outside all is in parables, yet to the disciples the secret of the kingdom of God is revealed. Can you set me straight here? Esoteric knowledge or not? Uh, actually, there's no inconsistency. I mean, there would be if we're talking about Martin Luther versus the Catholics. Uh, but um, if the question is, what do you think the esoteric meaning is? Like, Matthew sounds an awful lot like the Dead Sea Scrolls commentators, as in the Habakkuk Pesher, for instance. That was a, a common esoteric way of in, of interpreting an old text to save it from being a dead letter, to make it apply to uh, uh, to one's own day. And the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are saying, well, this predicts the teacher of righteousness who taught us, and this predicts uh, us and our break with the other guys and all that. With Matthew, it's Jesus. So it's a way of trying to find scriptural grounding for your own position and your own beliefs by reading it back into old texts as an esoteric meaning. You know, we never could have uh, expected this, but now in hindsight, now that it has dawned, we can recognize what was uh, what they had in mind there. Uh, and uh, it's just that the Gnostics had a whole different slate. I mean, it's not uh, not unparalleled in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the idea of the, having to know the secret names of angels, and stuff like that. There was common ground, but the, the as far as we know, the Dead Sea Scrolls writers didn't believe in the incredible kaleidoscope of uh, uh, the Gnostic cosmology. So, and in fact, this is the danger of claiming esoteric uh, interpretation. There's no control over what it is. It's purely 
subjective. You're making the Bible into a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, it, it says whatever you say. Uh, you don't need the Bible. In fact, you're just using it uh, as an author to author. Uh, to authorize your own views. <laughs> I said it. The Bible believes it. That settles it. Yeah, right. Why don't you just say, I said it? Well, because nobody would believe that. But if you can claim the Bible says, oh, oh, well, okay, that's different. Um, and finally, a bit of rambling question, a bit of a rambling question. Some parts of the New Testament are clearly Gnostic, Marcionite, or some other sect of belief. There seems to be a degree of ecumenicalism within the final New Testament whereby the editors tried to please all sides. Peter was as good as Paul is, in, is one example. While this creates an endless array of fascinating problems, is it not fatal to any claim of historicity for the described events? In short, is, is New Testament ecumenism fatal to historicity? Well, just like any contradictions uh, in narratives are, but the kind of stuff we started out talking about here with the Great Commission, uh, that does pretty much reveal these stories as rival attempts to uh, back up different views. The um, different views of fasting, about three of them uh, in, in, uh, between Matthew and Mark, uh, yeah, everybody got their say in, but which one you gonna do? I mean, uh, Matthew's position on divorce is a bit different from, uh, the Mark Luke version. Uh, and, uh, so w what guidance are you gonna follow? It's the problems with a committee. Doctrine. David F. Wells, uh, in a book called Revolution in Rome, said that that's what the documents of Vatican II uh, were like. They're compromise committee doctrines, so or like a, a political party platform. Everybody can find what they espouse in there, even though there's other stuff they don't agree with, which, of course, renders the whole thing meaningless, but it's all a formality anyway. Uh, Ernst Kesemann, in a really great essay, uh, something like the unity of the church and the New Testament canon, that's not quite right, I can never remember the uh, order of words, but he was commissioned by the World Council of Churches to uh, write this thing, showing how the New Testament canon is the basis for uh, the unity of the churches, and he... <laughs> In it, he says, it isn't. Uh, every sect can claim their own uh, square foot of ground in the canon. Uh, there are all sorts of clashes between writers. And uh, th there's so you, you can't have the, uh, the thing, uh, the, the unity you want based on this. And he argued for a kind of canon within the canon, as Martin Luther had. Uh, that was Christum tript, that which conveys Christ, is really canonical, and not everything in the New Testament Testament does. Uh, Kesemann called for the discernment of spirits within the New Testament. Now, when you get to stuff like the biggest uh, harmonization job, Peter and Paul being paralleled, you're exactly right. Uh, you mean to tell me that they both happened to heal a, a cripple, they both preached to Gentiles, uh, they uh, both healed in, in weird, uh, superstitious ways, one with his shadow, the others with his handkerchiefs, uh, they both were let out of prison by the, the jail cell doors opening by themselves, they both faced down a sorcerer, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, what's going on here? Uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, obviously somebody is copying something else. Uh, what are the chances? And so, uh, yeah, that's right, when you have this kind of fiddling, well, it's like, uh, I think uh, Austin Farrar mentioned and Frank Kermode reiterated, the more literary it looks, the less historical it is. Now, you could say, well, somebody might have written about a historical event in a very polished way. Well, yeah, but the thing is, once it looks like fiction, you can't be sure that's not what it is. Uh, so it's a matter of uh, evidence. Thanks, Tim. Okay, I have a Russian accent requested here uh, from Jan Novak. 
Comrade Geek, I wanted to write to take issue with something you have said before and said again on recent podcast, that you do not think that Judas's betrayal is really necessary to gospel narrative. Why would authorities need someone to point out this really famous preacher and miracle worker who was greeted by thousands on his way into Jerusalem? I think the answer, I think answer is quite simple. In days before photography, I do not think it would have been that easy to recognize a famous person on street like that, much less in dark garden. I have personally seen two U.S. presidents in person, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, but each only once and at distances of hundreds of feet. I would not have any real idea what either man looked like uh, if I had not seen their faces plastered everywhere on television for years. I know that we are talking about smaller crowds and Jesus didn't have a secret service to do full-body cavity search on anyone that wanted to get within a half mile of him. But does this seem plausible? Am I not giving people enough credit? Does it still seem like stretch even considering this, that they would need someone on the inside? Uh, Yeah, it does to me. Because... um, for one thing, you have to picture a crowd who could have heard Jesus without any public address uh, system. You, you run into a silly thing like in Monty Python's Life of Brian, where there's this ocean of people, and at the edge of it, uh, Jesus is raising his voice, uh, uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, and way out there on the margin. What do he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers? Um, we mustn't take it literally. Uh, surely it refers to all workers and dairy products. Well, uh, or Jesus in the temple with people uh, eagerly listening to him uh, make these sarcastic, parabolic cracks about the elders and so on. Th- there has to be, I mean, the crowd has to be limited by what you can hear. If I'm driving down the road and the reception on a radio station I want to listen to is poor and choppy and static, I I turn the radio off or switch stations. So you have to measure it by what would have been an effective crowd. And uh, it may not have been that big. Well, uh, with uh, with, uh, the idea of somebody tailing Jesus, would they, I mean, wouldn't it be possible to follow somebody? Uh, as Peter is said to have followed the arresting party from Gethsemane to the house of the high priest, why would you need Judas for that? I mean, if Jesus was habitually retreating to the Garden of Gethsemane, as it says, how much of a secret could that have been? Uh, why would they have needed Judas? And the fact that uh, it says that they they had to, they were plotting to arrest Jesus on the sly because they'd be rioting a tumult of the people if they arrested him in public. That kind of implies Jesus was known by sight to a whole lot of people. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, when Jesus is entering the city in Matthew on the donkey back and so on. It says a lot of people in Jerusalem said, who is this guy? Uh, And uh, Jesus fans said, oh, that's the prophet Jesus from Galilee. Well, the idea is that they didn't recognize him because he was a Galilean. Uh, And these Jerusalemites, who is this guy? Uh, But but the Jerusalemites, uh, I'm sorry, the the Galileans, they knew him by sight. Uh, And oh, yeah, that's uh, Jesus from Galilee. Uh, So um, it, it, well, or how about this? Uh, it, It certainly implies in the Gospel of John that uh, when the people Jesus had fed followed him uh, and uh, wanted more food, and Jesus says, look, don't don't kid me. You're not here because you want to hear the words of God. You you just want another meal, right? Well, they knew him, uh, and it's assumed that uh, he was popularly recognizable. So, uh, and, and you might say, well, yes, it was dark, though. Well, 
what, uh, wouldn't the Romans, I mean, it actually says, I think, that they had torches with them. Uh, Jesus isn't there with a huge group of people. Uh, they could have just walked up with swords to, to uh, stop the disciples from any funny business and uh, looked from one face to the other. Uh, so uh, I still think that uh, you have to do some explaining to come up with some role for Judas. He's really a fifth wheel. Well, anyway, okay, this is from Luther, not Martin Luther, mind you. And uh, what does he say here? Uh, I hate to beat a dead horse. And don't worry, folks, no actual dead horses were beaten in this episode of the Bible Geek. But I have yet another follow-up question on the Zoroastrians to Palestine line of questioning that you spoke about first in your August 4th Bible Geek, then again in the August 10th episode. I think while you gave a lot of great information in your answer, you may not have understood the main thrust of my question. So I want to try again. The reality, by the way, nobody should hesitate to do this. I, uh, I'm always happy to give clarification. Uh, the reality of each sect's relationship to Zoroastrianism and to official power is contrary to what I would expect. I would expect the Zoroastrian influenced group to be in power and the non-Zoroastrian group not to be. If you were the regional powerhouse and you were setting up a puppet government in the nation next door, you'd put your own disciples in charge. Not to say this resettled Palestine was necessarily a puppet government, I have no idea, but I'd assume it was at least understood that if sent to this land, they'd be somewhat loyal to the Babylonians, or Persians, I think you mean. In reality, however, it seems counterintuitive that the people placed in charge were the non Zoroastrian-influenced Sadducees, while the popular but less powerful Zoroastrian-influenced Pharisees were sitting on the outside looking in? Or did Sadducees not have control of the temple immediately after the return from exile, with more Zoroastrian-friendly Pharisaic types initially in control? Bingo! Uh, the time of the Pharisees, when they were dominant, is, is a couple of centuries at least least later than the than the arrival of Ezra and Nehemiah etc from Persia uh, and and things changed uh, and uh, so you, that's exactly the the uh, the missing piece uh, and uh, power went from one group to to the other okay uh, Frank Frost I'm hoping you can clarify something about your stance on abortion. Uh, what do you think about instances of ectopic pregnancy, rape, incest, and victims of human trafficking? Are there circumstances which, in which you'd say it's a moral imperative to allow an abortion? What do you think about birth control and Plan B? Would you agree that stopping a zygote from implanting is far better than a later abortion? Yeah, I'm all in favor of birth control, and, and I do see a big difference between, uh, like, the morning-after pill uh, and and uh, a technique that prevents fertilization of an egg. And um, I think it's just kind of stupid to say, well, you're either way, you're fiddling around with the reproduction system. Look, no, <laughs> there's a real difference, uh, precisely as you say, uh, preventing uh, fertilization versus snuffing out the percolating product of, uh, of insemination. Now, with these special cases, uh, I tend to, it's, it's ambiguous to me, and I don't have a settled opinion on a bunch of these things. And, uh, I, I always like to use abortion as an example of how, uh, m moral rules are an attempt to give order to an inherently chaotic situation. I do not think there are eternal rules of right and wrong built into the universe. Uh, I think that um, I like the uh, the image of like the, there is no justice except that which we create by trying to give order to society. 
And this is ultimately based on a social contract uh, that, uh, what do you say, uh, you don't steal from me and I won't steal from you. Wouldn't we all sort of enjoy that? Uh, I'd rather be free from your murderous designs. Wouldn't you not have to worry about that? I thought so. So let's outlaw murder and uh, deal with those who flout the law. Uh, that's what what happens. Now, what are you going to do when uh, it's not that clear how the rules apply? I think abortion is tantamount to a kind of second-degree murder. I'm not preaching this. I'm not saying, well, you're a fool if you don't accept what I say. I'm only giving my opinion because it's asked for. Uh, as to these um, these exceptional things like do you really want to bring to birth the uh, offspring of a racist i mean a rapist or racist either i guess one of the most chilling things i've ever seen is uh, a little infant in a tiny ku klux klan outfit at a klan rally and i thought well i guess there is such a thing as predestination after all uh, horribly well uh, but rapists um well, you know, uh, it's not the, uh, the infants or the fetuses, whatever, fault. Uh, do you want to uh, stop his progress toward life based on uh, who one of his parents was? I mean, well, think of the emotional state of the mother. Yeah, that, that is pretty awful, but I think a case is to be made that the, the life of the, uh, uh, child to be is, uh, outweighs that. Now, I could be wrong. That's just the way it seems to me. Or how about the case of incest? Well, from the little I have read, I'm no expert on this. Uh, it, uh, I'm not even well informed on this. But then again, I don't pretend to push my opinions on people here. Uh, uh, it, it apparently is less dangerous genetically than we once thought. But of course, uh, I'm against uh, incest, period. It's just that the offspring of such a union is not necessarily going to be handicapped or disabled or retarded or whatever. Uh, and even if you knew he was, you have the same problem there you do in this recent broadcast about uh, Iceland eliminating uh, fetuses that are likely to have Down syndrome. Do you really have the right to do that? I mean, why is that different from Hitler wiping out defectives, quote unquote? Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that that's analogous enough to uh, say, uh, nah, probably not. Uh, with uh, if uh, if the life of the mother is in danger. It's not my decision to make, but I can see an argument where um, you, you, the mother's obligation might be to die for the infant to live, because the whole idea of reproduction is you're creating replacements for yourself to keep your line going and the race going. Now, this is just the way, you know, the factors I ruminate over when I do. Uh, I'm no expert. I don't even really have convictions on some of these uh, these exceptional issues. But uh, this is the way I am currently dealing with it. But of course, for me, somebody like me, it's a parlor game. Uh, I My opinion makes no difference. So the fact that I don't have one that's settled is really as if you uh, reminds me of the time somebody in my uh, classroom when I had just moved down here to North Carolina, uh, they uh, said, who do you like, um, state or UNC? And I said, what are you talking about? Everybody, for some reason, had an allegiance to one of these North Carolina schools. Look, I don't have a dog in the race. Uh, why should I agonize over that or this? 
like the whole transgender thing. I'm an outside spectator. There's no urgency for me to even have an opinion about this. So I'm not going to bother. Uh, and uh, some of these things I feel the same way about. I know they are inherently important questions, but I don't, but nothing, I don't have what uh, uh, William James called a forced option. Uh, and uh, that's, I mean, if, if this came up with, uh, uh, my wife or daughters, it still wouldn't be my choice. Uh, but I, I guess I would have more of an opinion, but I wouldn't uh, uh, tell anybody what to do. So uh, if you're just interested in, you know, how I'm thinking of it, this is how. But I, uh, you know, I don't have any doctrine to promote. Well, okay, that's it for the rain barrel again. Now, you folks have been really good about uh, raining into my parade, which is just what I want. So I need more questions uh, pronto, uh, and I'm sure I'll get them. And I'll see you next time on the next exciting, exhilarating, entertaining edition of The Bible Geek. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.